This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of introducing the first of the Legends in Gynecologic Oncology podcast. It is absolutely a pleasure and an honor for me to introduce this gentleman, this individual, Dr. Charles Levenbach, um, who is a friend, a colleague, a mentor, and someone that I have admired uh, throughout my academic and professional career. Um, this is also uh, a time when uh, Charles is uh, uh, stepping away from his uh, academic and professional life and heading on to uh, a retirement. Um, so this is a, a great opportunity to uh, discuss uh, many, many, uh, many uh, topics and, and certainly address some of the greatest accomplishments of his academic uh, career. And certainly I wish we had the time to go on for uh, an hour, two hours, uh, and I think that definitely we have enough material to do so. But we will uh, try to highlight all of the fantastic achievements within uh, the, the time frame that, uh, that the podcast allows. Um, you know, Charles Levenbach uh, began his uh, career uh, by uh, getting his uh, degree in geography from McGill University in Montreal. And then he went on to the Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York. And following that, um, he went on uh, to an internship and residency in obstetrics and gynecology at Albert Einstein College of Medicine, also my alma mater for, uh, for medical school. And then subsequently, a fellowship in gynecologic oncology at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. We're going to talk a little bit more about um, his uh, life after uh, fellowship and uh, subsequently his uh, entry at, at MD Anderson. Um, but certainly, obviously, it is, again, an incredible honor um, and a pleasure to uh, have an opportunity to speak with you, Charles, on this uh, great event. Oh, thank you so much, Pedro. It's, I really feel honored that you asked me to participate. So, Charles, of course, we um, um, wanted to start by asking you um, about your earlier years. Uh, where were you born and, uh, and where did you grow up? So I was born in the same hospital where I went to medical school, Mount Sinai <laughs> in New York. Um, my father was a, a New York City police officer. He was born in New York City, uh, but his parents, my grandparents, came from what is now part of Belarus, Belarus um, at kind of the turn of the century through Ellis Island, and they were um, they were came with very little, and they had uh, they were building the American dream, although it was slow. Uh, my father was the first person in his family who was born in a hospital. The others were born at home. Mm. And uh, he spent most of his youth working in his father's grocery store um, in Manhattan. My mother was born in Vienna, Austria, and she was uh, fortunate to escape uh, on something called the Kinder Transport, which some of your listeners may know about. They're about uh, 10,000 Jewish children from Austria and Germany who were rescued uh, largely by British families just before the outbreak of World War II. And that compares to 1.5 million Jewish children who perished in the Holocaust. So she was very, very fortunate. I was fortunate that she survived. 
Um, my parents met in England during World War II when he was a GI and she was a refugee. And then my father shipped home. And a few years later, they were riding in the subway and they happened to bump into each other. And mm. that resulted ultimately in a marriage and two children. Wow. What an amazing start uh, and, and subsequent beginning to your life as a, as a child and a young individual. Um, Charles, what, what inspired you to go into medicine? And then also ultimately, what led you to gynecologic oncology? You know, I was, I was not um, a highly motivated student. <laughs> not a, uh, I was a good student, but not a highly motivated. Uh, but my mother held doctors in medicine in very high esteem. And in fact, there's an old family legend that when I was a baby in my bassinet and uh, the family members would come over to like see the new baby, she would open the door where I was sleeping and, and introduce me as the future Dr. Levenbach. <laughs> um, so, so, um, but I, I was interested in math and science. I went to kind of a Bronx science, which was a math and science school. And, um, but I knew I didn't want to be a science major in, as an undergrad. And I was interested in urban development and urban planning. And that's where the geography thing came in. But I did all of my science uh, prerequisites, and then, you know, I, I wasn't quite sure where to go with uh, with geography. My father was a New York City police officer and a veteran, so for him, the, the army or the police department were good options. Although my father, abs my mother, absolutely prohibited that path, so I wound up applying to medical school, and I was lucky to get in. Mm -hmm. As far as gynon goes, I. I was very disillusioned. Um, I, well, I started out wanting to be an internist, and OBGYN was my last uh, resident, my last rotation. And I remember watching a resident do a hysterectomy and thinking, you know, I, I really could do this. This doesn't look that hard. <laughs> and um, and so I wound up going into OBGYN, and I, the first year was awful. I almost dropped out to do anesthesia as something I considered quote unquote easier. Um, but fortunately I didn't. And in my second year, I had my first oncology uh, res rotation and I had the same experience of watching a radical hysterectomy and thinking, this doesn't look so hard. I think I could do this. And uh, that started me down the track of Gynonc. And, and actually I really hit my stride. I did a, in Gynonc, I did a Galloway at, at Sloan Kettering and I I don't know, there was something that just clicked. And where I was a very average kind of student and resident before that, I felt like I, I, started, I found something where I could really shine. It was like the right combination of surgery, medicine, patient care that really suited, just matched well for me. So then that brings you to the fellowship, the fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering. They make yeah. you shine by abrasion. <laughs> how, how do you how do you consider this experience has shaped you, first as a human being and then uh, professionally? Well, I had I had some incredible mentors at Memorial, and Memorial is a great organization, a great institution. Um, so Bill Hoskins made a big impact on me, uh, but he wasn't alone. Uh, Steve Rubin, Walter Jones were great role models. And I was fortunate enough to have 
meet a lot of other people who have become leaders in our field. So as a resident, Andy Burchuk and Eva Chalice were, were uh, fellows of mine. And as a fellow, my senior fellow was John Curtin. Mm -hmm. And um, so I met some great people. And uh, I just, uh, Memorial was a great place. That your introduction, People from Memorial Shine Because We Polish from Abrasion, is a quote from Dr. Lewis, and he was kind of an old school type of guy. He really believed that, that, you know, being tough and demanding and abrasive was ended in good results. And I would say that high standard that lived with me in terms of high standards, but the abrasive part of, of it, I saw as counterproductive and kind of part of my interest in safety and professionalism stemmed from that experience. So then uh, you, you had a transition and then ultimately uh, came to MD Anderson. Um, right. what, what year was that and, and what brought you to Houston? So I finished my fellowship in 1989 and um, I wound up coming to Houston and joining the University of Texas Health Science Center. Bob Creasy was the chair and I, but I also had a part-time appointment at MD Anderson, which was literally across the street from the <laughs> medical school. And fortunately, after two years, I, I came became full-time at MD Anderson, kind of the roles reversed. I was part-time at the Health Science Center and full-time at MD Anderson. And, um, I, you know, I thought I was coming to Houston for a few years, <laughs> uh, you know, and then go back to New York, which I, of course, as a lifelong New Yorker, kind of thought was the center of the universe. Um, maybe you can relate to that as a New Yorker patron. <laughs> exactly. And, but I, but after a few years of living in Houston, I kind of realized that I liked it. There was, there were things in my personal life, like a divorce, that made staying in in Houston kind of the best thing for the family. And then MD Anderson has been a fantastic employer. Absolutely. So now, Charles, on to your, your stamp in history. You've obviously made many contributions to gynecologic oncology, but I think that perhaps the, the, the most memorable or impacting is your pioneering work on sentinel lymph node mapping. Uh, you know, certainly a term that back in the 90s uh, was pretty unheard of for, for gynecologic oncology and actually for many of the surgical specialties. So... How did, how did you come about uh, getting involved with the concept of sentinel lymph node mapping? And I wonder if you have any recollections as to the first case. So I was always interested in vulvar cancer. As a, as a resident at Bronx Municipal Hospital, which I also know you are familiar mm -hmm. with, Pedro, there was, a, um, there was a patient with recurrent vulvar cancer who was in the hospital for chronic pain and it was just the, the most devastating, heartbreaking situation. Um, the floor was, the unit was a long, narrow, rectangular unit. There were six room beds. Each room had six beds in it. This patient had tumor eroding through her bladder and pubic synthesis. It smelled terrible. And the nurses put her in the last room, furthest from the nurse's station, with the door closed in the room by herself because of the horrible odor. And this was an era, era before PCA, patient-controlled analgesic. Mm -hmm. So she had to wait forever for to get her pain medication. Mm -hmm. She didn't speak English, and it, it was just, I, I, I mean, it was horrific to watch. 
And in Memorial, my, my grand rounds topic was vulvar cancer. And then as, at, at MD Anderson, you know, I was kind of struggling to find my niche here. It was, you know, there was such overwhelmingly strong personalities and people. I was looking for something that nobody else kind of was doing. And a patient, I saw a patient as a consult. She had a melanoma in her anterior thigh, the cutaneous melanoma. And her surgeon sent her to the screening clinic because she hadn't had a pap smear in many years. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, she also had a stage one cervix cancer. So she needed, so the standard treatment would be a local excision of her leg, a unilateral groin dissection, and bilateral pelvic lymphadenectomy with a radical hip. Mm-hmm. And when I talked to her surgeon about that, we it was obvious that she was going to have terrible leg edema from that. And he said, well, there's this new thing called lymphatic mapping that they were just starting to do in melanoma, this patient would be a good candidate for that. Mm. And so I kind of didn't know anything about it, but I went to the OR and watched him do it. It was Paul Mansfield. And when I saw the blue dye in the, the lymphatic channel and in the lymph node, it's like it all just light bulbs went off in my brain. Because I had studied groin anatomy a lot, and you know, but when you operate on a groin, you can't see the channels or nodes. You're just operating on fat. Mm-hmm. So this seemed to like just make the anatomy come to life, and I immediately thought, I'm going to do this in vulvar cancer. <laughs> Amazing, and uh, and I think the first publication on vulvar sentinel lymph node mapping was back in 1994. Right. Um, what was that experience like? So first of all, Don Morton published, I believe, in 1992. So the first real Sentinel Note publication was then. And by so I started, I think that this case happened at the end of 92, 93. So I had been kind of starting to do this. And Merrick Ross and, and Paul Mansfield, two great surgical oncologists, helped teach me how to do it. And uh, the the faculty in Kainak was very supportive, especially, I have to give a shout out to Tom Burke <laughs> and uh, and Rob Coleman. Rob Coleman was the fellow at the time. And for all of your, your listeners who know Rob, he's incredibly enthusiastic. And he was like, Charles, you got to do this. It's going to be great. <laughs> and um, Sounds like and Rob. So, <laughs> so we did the first nine, nine cases, and I, we were really – concern that somebody else might beat us to the punch. So, and Dave Gershenson, another mentor, really kind of said, you know, I think you should just submit it. And I think the Green Journal, Obstetrics and Gynecology is the right place. And, you know, I was used to like submitting a manuscript and having it like torn to shreds. And, <laughs> you know, you get that review where you feel like they're telling you this is the stupidest thing we've ever seen. And you're a terrible writer. And, <laughs> But this one, it got returned by the editor in like a week. And he said, we want to publish this as a lead uh, lead article. Just make a few changes to it, and it will be in the next edition. Wow. So that was extraordinarily exciting for an assistant professor of gynecologic oncology. <laughs> That's fantastic. What a, what a great story. And i uh, love for, for our younger listeners to, uh, to <laughs> listen to that and be inspired. Um, yeah, don't let the manuscript linger on your desk. You got to get it in. <laughs> That's right. So then, now, Charles, looking back, I mean, obviously, did, you, you started this back in uh, in the 1990s, um, hoping that this was going to 
impact patient care. Um, looking back on it, did you ever consider where the concept of central lymph node mapping in gynecologic oncology was going to go, the impact it was going to have, the practice changing contribution? Did you consider that at that time? Well, you know, I I can't say I had the the short answer is yes. I I had spent a lot of time as a fellow and as a as an attending basically taking out normal lymph nodes. We did a pelvic and periodic lymphadenectomy for cervix cancer, endometrial cancer, early ovarian cancer, a full groin dissection for vulvar cancer and and 90% of the time, the, the nodes were normal, and 50% of the time, there was some sort of complication related to that. And remember, this was an area when we did pelvic lymphadenectomies. We put in, you know, retroperitoneal drains that would get infected, and, you know, it was total lymphadenectomy was just, mm-hmm. that doesn't even count the lymphedema, was was just not a really good operation. And I saw in, in central no biopsy that, it, it would change the paradigm that we could really identify and focus treatment on the patients who actually had positive nodes. So I, the, the thing that was a challenge for me is would my colleagues accept change and accept something new? <laughs> and uh, that was the big challenge because people routinely came up to me in the beginning of this in meetings and said, it would say like, well, how are we going to, how are those fellows going to learn how to do groin dissections if we just do a sentinel node on everybody? <laughs> and I was like, well, maybe we shouldn't be doing groin dissections. <laughs> and, uh, and I always felt that if it worked in vulvar cancer, it would work in cervix and endometrial. Obviously, ovary is different because of perineal spread. But, um, but if we ever got to the point where ovarian cancer could be detected 80% of the time as confined to the ovary, sentinel nodes would make sense for it too. So as a follow-up question to that, you know, certainly with your leadership and reputation in, in surgical gynecologic oncology, I'm going to ask you sort of a broad question. Um, where, where do you think are the next frontiers in surgery in gynecologic oncology? Well, as you know, I, Pedro, I'm, I feel very passionate about surgery and safety and quality and outcomes. Mm -hmm. And I still think that in the surgical world, we're a little primitive in the sense that we, we, we still tie too much of surgical outcomes to like the personality and training and experience of the individual surgeon. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you think about it, when you, when we take a patient to the OR, the patient never asks who's going to be the anesthesiologist because they've kind of evolved a culture for for that that they're interchangeable. You know, I'm not saying that every anesthesiologist knows everything about all anesthesia, but they've subspecialized into different areas and they follow the same protocols, they use the same machines, the same equipment, and they're very standardized. And Low-risk anesthesia, by the way, is one of the ultra-safe areas of medicine. Same thing is true with commercial aviation. You know, when you book a flight on your favorite airline, do you ask who's the pilot? (laughs) Of course not, because the pilots have all gone through the same training. 
And also, you know, whether that pilot, sure, there's differences in experience between having 1,000 hours or 10,000 hours, but even the guy with, or the woman with 10,000 hours, they still have to go through periodic training Mm -hmm. and simulation when there's an upgrade or a new equipment or or something like that, and they can't get out of it just based on their seniority or or reputation. So I think in surgery, one of our challenges is, number one, how to introduce innovation. We should not accept the high complication rates for new procedures. Number two is, how do we bring all surgical um, experiences up to the same standard and maintain that? And um, I, I... I believe for Gynox, surgery is still going to be the cornerstone of our specialty for a long time to come because as we keep making it safer, there are a lot of reasons why surgery is is a great alternative to the medical treatments. Some of those medical treatments, as we all know, are pretty toxic and take a long time, whereas a surgical intervention, if you can reduce the risk down to very low, very low number, is can be pretty quick. So I think surgery is here to stay, but I think we have to do better on the safety, quality, and outcomes. Yeah, incredibly, incredibly important, uh, and and I think so timely, absolutely. Um, now, Charles, you, you, you've you conducted several collaborative group studies, many of them with yeah. the uh, gynecologic oncology group and others. Um, wh- why do you think that surgical trials are such a challenge, particularly to conduct uh, today? Well, this is a great question because they, you know, you, we both have done surgical trials that took 10 years. <laughs> I don't know how long the LAC trial took, but, ten you years. know, it, <laughs> 10 years, okay, that have taken really long time. And, um, and you know, those two studies, GLG-173, LAC, groins, groins V1 and 2 have been successful. But don't forget that GOG-206, which was central lymph nodes for cervix cancer, was a, was a failure mm-hmm. and uh, didn't accrue enough, and it got terminated and, and never published. So, And that could have been the study that established a uh, uh, central node for, for, um, for, for cervix cancer a long time ago. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that we really – this is where collaboration is so important. We need our statisticians and our – and our study design specialists, and not necessarily gynecologic oncologists, people with other areas of expertise, to help us design trials that can be uh, faster. Mm-hmm. And it gets back to the training and credentialing for those trials. Like, you know, in GOG-173, the, you know, the vast majority of the, of the um, false negative sentinel nodes occurred early in people's experience. Mm-hmm. And so we've, we've, just like in phase one studies, they've made them shorter and more successful. We need to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Well, but I'm not a statistician. I don't know how to do that, but that should be our goal. <laughs> so then now, um, looking forward, um, yeah. what do you think? Obviously, we're already seeing massive changes to our field. What do you think gynecologic oncology is going to look like in 15, 20 years from now? Yeah, I, I've... You know, I, I I approach that question with a lot of humility because 20 years ago, if you had asked me that question, I don't think that I would have talked to you about immunotherapy and targeted therapy and uh, minimally invasive surgery and, and robots. So 
but I would say a couple of things. Number one, um, I think that medical treatments are going to continue to grow and expand kind of at an accelerated pace. You know, my 30 years of being a gin oncologist, carbotaxel has been the backbone of medical oncologic care for our patients for almost that entire time. So in that respect, things have gone slowly. But on the other hand, we now have targeted therapy and immunotherapy that are going to continue to grow. Um, I think from the surgical side, I think the, the word robot for is kind of a misnomer. The, what we call a robot's not a robot. Robots are supposed to reduce human labor. Our machines increase human labor and increase costs and overhead and all that. I don't really think that the case has been made yet. Although I know surgeons love it, but when when you I don't know I'm still a skeptic a, ro a robotic skeptic, mm -hmm. and I think that there'll be more as our reimbursements are looked at more and more critically, and there can't be an endless amount of money for healthcare. Uh, you know, really, what you know, kind of we have to show a return mm -hmm. that we have to show that we're really our use of technology really benefits patients and is less expensive. We have done a great job at reducing the length of stay for surgical patients. We've done a great job in recent years with ERAS, and Pedro, you should be proud of your work there too. Um, and I think that, that we have to hammer away at that so that um, um, it's just cheaper to do these things surgically. Absolutely. So now getting a little bit more into uh, you as, as a person, as an individual, uh, what do you consider have been the most important motivations for you during your career? Well, I always, I always felt in, that my core competency was at the bedside. Mm -hmm. And I never wanted to get too far away from that. And I made conscious decisions like that. I, I did not... Yeah, I'm, as you know, you know me also as an administrator. I was the chief quality officer here. I'm the, I retired as the chief professionalism officer. I was the deputy chair of the department. I was the medical director of our practice during a period of a lot of growth. Um, but I always felt my core competency was with a patient, and that's where I really got my energy and juice from. And I, in you know, in the sentinel node period, part of the reason I was so successful at developing that is because I was so busy clinically and I was doing so many cases that uh, it and that is so it really stimulated my creative juices for in that regard and I just love working with the patients um, so I would say that was number one number two is was always and they're suffering like I talked about that that patient at Jacoby who mm -hmm. had recurrent bulbar cancer like Our goal has to be to heal and alleviate suffering. Even though we don't cure everybody, we can still make a big impact. Um, another really important motivator has been education and our relationship to our fellows. That's a very, very gratifying part of our job, training the next generation. And, um, you know, I know the impact that my mentors had on me. And I, you know, I, I think that's in a lot of ways becomes our big legacy. You know, GLG, if you ask a medical student today or, or OBGYN resident about what's GLG-173, they, they probably don't even know because sentinel notes are already accepted. But if you ask a trainee, like, you know, where did you learn to, to 
open up the paravesical face that way, they'll be able to say Charles Levenbeck. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, uh, I tell you and I reaffirm that as a, a trainee under your leadership and mentorship, uh, you you were and all and continue to be a master uh, of, a, oh, of the clinician you. at the bedside and in the operating room. So uh, thank you, thank you for for all that that uh, that you have uh, instilled in on in all of us as your trainees. Now let me ask you. Uh, speaking of trainees, what would you advise a young trainee uh, starting gynecologic oncology uh, today? We have many in our audience. So <laughs> as you as you know, there were. I, I, when people came to work in my clinic, there were three rules. Number one was be good to the patient. So I really have no tolerance for doctors who are just mean to their patients. So if, and if you're not there, if you can, I think that there are people who graduate from medical school and feel like they can't, they don't belong in the clinic and they do other things in healthcare or medicine that are outside the clinic. That's wonderful. It's fantastic. Don't be a gen oncologist if you can't, if you can't be compassionate. And, uh, and good to the patients. The second thing is to be honest, and that means being honest with your mentors um, and your, your superiors, but also with the patients. I mean, I really think that we have, to, we have to get beyond the paternalism of being afraid to talk to patients about their prognosis. Mm -hmm. We have to be, find ways to communicate with compassion and candid, you know, being candid. And the final thing is to be a team player. Um, You know, it's a team sport more than ever. When I was a medical student, it was, you know, we were all lone wolves. I remember getting yelled at because I didn't look at the urine specimen myself. And I remember thinking, this is ridiculous. There's a guy in the lab who looks at 100 urine specimens a day. I look at one every day, one a night. Why don't we just send it to the lab? And we've kind of evolved to the point where we accept that people's expertise at their jobs is very important. So it takes a team, and uh, you know, back in the day, it was just me and the attending as a fellow. Now, integral members of our team are you know, advanced practice providers, pharmacists, mm -hmm. the resident, the fellow, and so it's a team sport. And yes, we have a lot of responsibility, but the patient should see us as a team, and we should facilitate and and uh, accommodate our teammates and. Um, And that, that is what results ultimately in the best care for the patient. Yeah, great advice. Um, now, I'm going to, perhaps I should uh, give you a pause so you can think about the answer to this question. But <laughs> if, if the Charles Levenbach of today was giving advice to the Charles Levenbach starting his fellowship back <laughs> many years ago, what would you tell him to do differently? Well, um, He did a lot of things well. <laughs> I always used to tell my my fellows when they rolled their eyes at, at a request to check another lab or do another thing, I'd say, you know what? I was a pretty good intern back in the day. I could do this myself if you want me to. <laughs> so, um, so I would say uh, I did a lot of things well. But I would say that, number one, I sometimes I cared more about what people thought than about what the patient thought. And that was, mm -hmm. that was a mistake. And that sometimes I was afraid to ask questions. And that was definitely, that was, that, that was a mistake and also endangered people. And so I, I wish I had kind of gotten over that sooner. Now I constantly asking 
what does that abbreviation stand for? What is that new thing that I don't know? Um, I also, um, I, I, you know, I, I think that to achieve, you know, kind of a leadership in, in healthcare now, uh, in whether it's at a department level, healthcare system, quality, safety, probably graduate level training is much more important than it was now. I, I kind of started thinking about a graduate, like a master's or something like that, but it was a little, it was kind of a little too late. You know, the, I just didn't have the energy to go back to school. If I was going to do it, I needed to do it much sooner. And uh, I do think that healthcare has gotten so big, so complicated, so much money, so many people involved. It's kind of silly to think that, that you can really kind of obtain executive level status and, and responsibility without further training beyond an MD. Right. So I would say make that decision early in your life. Excellent. So now um, you're like that pilot that takes, you know, their, their last flight. And we show yeah. you, you know, the last day in the operating room. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What was that like? And what do you look forward to now that you're officially starting your retirement? Well, the last case was incredible. It was, uh, there's a lady who got sent to me by Dave Gershenson who had low grade, low grade serious carcinoma of the ovary who had had surgery somewhere else and she had urinary drains and GI drains and she was miserable. She had very low volume of disease. Mm. She'd had pelvic radiotherapy, like just, it was a mess. And I assembled a, a team of myself, a colorectal surgeon, a urologist, reconstruction urologist and a plastic surgeon. And basically put it all, took it apart and put it back together again. And in this very final case, I saw something I had never seen before. I'd read about, but never seen, which was that the urologist reconstructed the ureter with a segment of ilium, mm. so an ileal interposition. So surgery was exciting right up to the end. And it was, I felt, I always felt like there was something new and, and interesting to learn in the OR. I really love the OR. And as I told people, I would, I could have kept operating as long as I didn't have to do pre-op care, post-op care. <laughs> talk to the patients before and after and their families and especially not have to give bad news. So, um, so, um, and, uh, what was the second part of that question? What are you looking for to doing oh, in retirement? So I, you know what the most important thing I'm looking forward to is just not being a doctor. And I have to say my stress level went down <laughs> within days in a way that I've not experienced in many, many years. So when we're on vacation, when you take your two-week vacation once a year, you know, that the, the, the 10 days leading up to that, you're, you know, you're penalized, and the 10 days when you return, you're penalized. And the first, you know, the first few days when you leave and the last few days before you go back, you're preoccupied by that. And you have a little bit of window in the middle where you might actually not think about medicine and think about the patients and think about uh, which emails you're missing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, within a few days of retiring, I, I'd wake up in the morning and go, oh, my God, I don't have to do that, that stuff. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was really, I really have felt unburdened. And uh, like a lot of your listeners, probably I've been kind of isolated by COVID. So I've already made one road trip to uh, Washington, D.C. to see family and mm. about to make another one to New York to 
for an extent, you know, and, and not for two weeks, but for two months to really be able to spend time with my in-laws and children and cousins. And it's, I'm excited about that. And, and really just being able to go and where I want to, I'm, I'm really interested in, my wife does a lot of volunteer work, work here in Houston with the food bank. And mm. so I'm helping her out and we both do, uh, feel very passionately about the Holocaust Museum Houston. As mm. I told you, my, my mother's a survivor, and we've donated a lot of our family legacy there, and I continue to work with them and uh, into kind of... And, it's, and honestly, the mission of the museum has never been more relevant than it is today when we're seeing, you know, new forms of hate and new forms of, of uh, you know, um, new spins on the old themes re-emerging in our culture and society. So take vigilance. So Charles, now one last question. How would you like to be remembered? So that's a really great question too. Um, first of all, the corporate memory of MD Anderson is short. I don't think that, I, I mean, in the, my, you know, the people you touch personally, I think are where your memories, the memories live longer. At least that's my experience. Um, so I would like to be remembered by the patients as having done a good, having done the best I could for them and, um, you know, fought for them and advocated for them and not let the bureaucracy of, of healthcare got, get in the way of giving them the best care. And, you know, although we're in a teaching organization and a lot of the care is provided by our trainees for not, you know, you know, for maintaining responsibility and quality control over making sure that they get the best care possible. I would want all my patients to feel that way. I would want the trainees to feel like, um, although I might have been demanding, and I'm human too at times, I'm sure I was difficult to get along with. And I, I can hear the snickering from some of our former trainees right now. <laughs> um, I'm sure that I, I, I could be a pain in the neck because I was like everybody else. I mean, it, it hasn't always been easy. There was, I mentioned divorce, um, you know, kids who got sick. Um, uh, you know, I lost both my parents during my career. I had a, a cousin who took his own life during this time. And, uh, you know, I have experienced like these ups and downs. And for, for having that, you know, the paper accepted quickly, I've also had, the, you know, all the rejections. I didn't get every job that I applied for. So, um, so I, I had, you know, I had rough times too, but I hope that I'll probably primarily remember being an educator and caring. And, um, and as far as my coworkers go, I hope that, um, I hope that also for trainees and coworkers remember me as an innovator. And like you, you've mentioned about sentinel notes, like I, I did have a vision that we would stop doing lymphadenectomy. And I feel very fortunate to basically have lived long enough to see that happen. Lymphadenectomy, you know, is just a, should be a procedure of the past, except for a very, very specific set of circumstances. And um, so when people change is like the only thing that we can be certain of, and that includes in our professional and clinical practices and our, you know, how hospitals operate, how we're reimbursed, how we document, I know there's a lot of kind of complaints about the electronic record, and it is tough to master, but just think about all the benefits. I mean, I, I grew up in an area where everything was pen and paper, 
and I could be an OR all day, come and make rounds, look in the chart to see that note from the consultant, and it's completely illegible. And I can't even figure out who to page to have them translate it for me. That never happens now. So, um, so innovation is a good thing if it's done carefully and appropriately. And, um, and so I hope I'm remembered as an innovator. Charles Levenbeck, a legend in gynecologic oncology, a teacher, an innovator, obviously a, a caring <laughs> doctor. And uh, Charles, I want to thank you for all that you have contributed to gynecologic oncology. I want to thank you personally for how you've impacted my uh, personal and academic and professional career. And I want to thank you for everything that you have done for women with gynecologic cancers. Thank you very much. Thank you, Pedro. I really appreciate that.